Well, good morning. It's uh, really good to be here with you. And just to mention, the, uh, the Children's Club on the Friday, we insist that the children come accompanied with an adult. So while we have two kiddies, we also have adults who are there as well. And that's really good because what happens is, you know, we will sit down with them while Matthew just thinks of the kids, chance to maybe chat. Also, they can see what we're doing. And when Matthew does the gospel talk with the children, they can hear that. They know what they're being taught. And um, they're also there to maybe be able to control the children. You know, when, you know one of them might be messing about a bit, and the mum or the dad will just look at them and go, hey, cut it out. <laughs> Which is quite good. But the important thing is that, yeah, the adult is there as well. So even though there's only two children, there are adults, which is great. You know, as I look around at each and every one of you, I'm so thankful that we are all different. We all have individual personalities. That's what it means to get to know each other, just to be able to recognize and see a person, but to know what's going on in here, what's going on in here, and to get to know their, their, their sort of what drives them, what motivates them. And, you know, we get to know each other and we are all individuals. Even our fingerprints are different. That's how unique you are. Do you realize that? You are so unique that no one else, as far as we know, <laughs> has fingerprints like yours. That's really great. You know, David, in one of his psalms, a well known psalm, Psalm 139, he started the psalm by saying this as he praised God. He said, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Ah, great. At the end of the psalm, in verse 23 and 24, David said this. He said, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me, and know my anxious thoughts. See, this is David's personality. See if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Yeah. David recognises his individuality, but he also recognises his need. God. David knew what it was, now get this, to be reconciled with God. He knew what it was to have an everlasting, yes, everlasting relationship with God. This book, the Bible, it's God's way of telling us that each and every one of us can have the same everlasting relationship with God. The book is God's Word. If you go to Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, it's a verse that you know very well. And this is what it says about itself, what the Bible says about itself really. For the Word of God is alive and active sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It exposes who we really are. Individuals. Individuals separated from God. How? By our sinful nature. Individuals who can be reconciled to God by the power and the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's a living book. 
It's the written word of God. Get this. Written by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And the main theme is the one who is the word that became flesh, Jesus. What do we have there? The Trinity, the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's what this book is. A living book. And you know, it's no accident that within this book we have four Gospel writers. I won't ask you, but I'm sure you can all repeat their names. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yeah? What was the little song? Bless the bed, but I think that was the little kiddie song. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four gospel writers. Each one guided by the Holy Spirit to bring the truth of the gospel to the people. Each one written. This is important. Each one written with compassion and with a desire for their readers to understand what they are saying. Why? So that they could see who Jesus is. And they could see why they needed to respond to the sacrifice that he made on their behalf. Get that? Each of the four Gospel writers brings to us an eyewitness account of the earthly ministry of Jesus. You know, you've probably heard this before, but in a court of law, when individual witnesses are called to testify, that is to give an account of what they know to be true, their statements would not all be exactly the same. In fact, if they were, there would be suspicion of collaboration. Collaboration to hide the truth. If every witness got up and said exactly the same thing in the same way, any police officers there would go, aye aye, that's not right. You know, we also have this at a funeral. At a funeral service, a number of people might want to speak about the deceased, it's called giving the eulogy. Might be family members, wife, husband, son, daughter, maybe some friends, a work colleague or a neighbour. But you know, when you're sitting there listening to them, no two accounts would be exactly the same, but there would be overlaps. But they wouldn't be exactly the same. The common denominator would be that they were all speaking about the same person. Yeah. They're all speaking about the same person. And this is what the four gospel writers do. They speak about Jesus. But not only that, they speak from experience. They speak from what they know to be the truth. Each coming from a different angle and together they bring to us a complete picture of who Jesus is. A picture of what he said, what he did, and more importantly, they tell us why he said what he said, why he did what he did, and they tell us why he came. This morning, what I want us to do, I want us to look at Matthew, the Gospel writer. Not the content of his Gospel, verse by verse. Which we could do, and which we should do, and I hope we do do. But not this morning. I want us to look at the man as an individual 
in a way that will help us to see and understand the main theme that runs through his gospel as he presents to us the one who is Jesus. You know, it's quite nice to go around the, the big churches or cathedrals with the stained glass windows and we'll see the, the you know, these stained glass, this is Matthew, the gospel writer, you know, stained glass window, all his, uh, no, no, it might be nice to look at, artistically it's very good, but Matthew was a real person like you and I, flesh and blood, he, he, he thought like we think, and he had his own way of thinking, he, he had his own, what did he call them, idiosyncrasies, he was a real person, this gospel writer Matthew, that's what I want us to do, sort of try and get a hold of him. Matthew, first of all, the converted tax collector. He's not just a theorist. He's not just got some ideas that he wants to share, so he goes and writes the gospel. No, there was feeling, there was compassion, there was truth behind Matthew's gospel, the man Matthew, just like you and I. Matthew, the converted tax collector. We read about that. Matthew read in uh, Matthew 9, verse 9 to 12. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. This would be in the open air. Follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him. Matthew. To get that position as a tax collector, he would have had to bid with the Roman authorities to have what he saw as a privilege of being a tax collector. Once he was a tax collector, the money he collected would be passed on to the Roman Empire. And the amount would be the amount that they demanded. That's what happens with our taxes. We know what we have to pay the taxman. And Matthew knew what people had to pay to the Roman Empire, so he would make sure he got that. But whatever he collected over and above that was his. Yeah. Tax collectors were seen as being agents of a foreign power, and they were despised by the people. They were seen as being the lowest of the low. <laughs> we still have a bit of feeling like that, the tax collector, don't we? The one who takes our money and gives it to the government. And it was worse when the money was going to a foreign power. It was suppressing you. And yet is Matthew a Jew taking the money from the people. These tax collectors amass their wealth often by what we call Extortion, let's be honest about this. This is Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew's booth would have been in a prominent place, maybe going down by the docks where the ships are coming in, or where there's a lot of business going on, a lot of people. He needed to keep his contact with the general public. Surprising what the tax collectors know about, isn't it? He needed that information, he wouldn't have to collect it himself. He would have an ear to the ground. He'd need to keep up to speed with what was happening in his community. And it's fair to say that he would have known about Jesus. 
Maybe he saw some of the miracles. He certainly would have heard about them. He would have known the things that Jesus had been saying and doing in, in Capernaum. Maybe he even heard him speak as he was speaking to the crowds and Matthew was there in that community. And while all this is happening, Matthew would be sitting down in his tax collector's booth going about his business of extortion. That's what he was. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying all tax collectors are extortionists. But Matthew was, because that's how he made his living. He got whatever was over and above the requirements of the Roman Empire. And when Jesus said to him, follow me, Matthew got up and followed him. That's, you know, Jesus said, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. This, I don't believe, was merely an impulsive act. What was really happening here to Matthew? This is an illustration of the sovereignty of God. This is an evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit that led Matthew to respond to, to God's irresistible grace that made him leave his old way of life behind and follow Jesus. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't just a, an idea that came into Matthew's head. This was God who'd been working in Matthew's life while he'd been sitting at that tap room, while he'd been extorting the people. And he knew what was going on around about him. Well, God by the power of the Holy Spirit, worked in his heart. And when Jesus called him, he responded. That was an irresistible call. He was showing the grace of God. And this was a life-changing moment, the moment when Matthew, a Jew, who was so far away from God, that he was embezzling his own people. The nation of Israel, the so-called God's children couldn't get much further away from God than that. And when he heard Jesus say, follow me, he got up and left the booth and he followed Jesus. This is the result of the change in his heart, which was a change brought by God. This is God's powerful living word. And this is the start for Matthew of a new life in Christ. I want to stop for a moment. You know, we have Jesus the man. But Jesus the Christ is the Messiah. That's what the word is. And now Matthew, this Jew, starts a new life in the Messiah. This is what the Apostle Paul says about the call that he had on the road to Damascus to follow Jesus. That was almost as impulsive really, but he had the call and he followed, he went. And in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, Paul speaks, and when Paul speaks, when you know Paul and you know the history, you know about those, you read about his missionary journeys and the trials he went through, about his conversion on the road to Damascus, you get to know the man 
Paul. And when he speaks, and when you read his letters, he's speaking about experience. He's speaking about what happened to him. So we can read in these words. We're going to look at that in, in this letter to the Corinthians. And when Paul says this to the church, he's speaking from here. He knows the meaning of what he's saying because he's experienced it, just like Matthew's doing now. This is what he said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's where Paul was. He's a new creation, the new creation has come, the old is gone and the new is here. In that same passage, Paul goes on to speak about reconciliation. Be good for us to go to that passage and go through it. But I just want to bring it into context of what we're doing, looking at the light of Matthew, seeing a reflection in the light of Paul, and seeing in Paul's words he's expressing something of himself, and he's giving his own testimony, he's speaking the truth, and he says, For Christ's love compels us. Matthew is compelled to get on. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that the one died for all. And therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Matthew, a man who's been living for himself, imagine him counting his money. <laughs> and when he went home at night, you know, first thing he do is sit down. And while the captain was born, I thought, oh, I could cancel the week. <laughs> he lived for himself again. He probably had a big house. Father Regan tells us that he probably did. He had a lot of friends, but friends who were like him. Tax collectors and others. But Paul goes on in Corinthians. All this is from God. Get this. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation, restoring a relationship between man and God. A relationship that was there at the beginning of time, but a relationship that was broken when Adam sinned, and that sin comes down to us. That is our nature. Paul says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sin against them, and he was committed to us, has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Matthew, the sinner, is now Matthew, the sinner, saved by grace. It's all of God. Paul goes on to tell us a little bit more about his conversion in verse 20, Corinthians. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. This is part of the change. The change that's going to happen to Matthew and is happening to Paul, that's already happened to Paul. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Each and every one of the gospel writers will identify with that and probably say it of themselves. We are Christ's ambassadors. And they're making an appeal and making an appeal on Christ's behalf as they present the gospel. Paul goes on. God made him who had no sin to be sin. This is the reason 
This is the essence, this is the depth of what is happening in the life of Matthew that's happening in the life of Paul. This is the miracle. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become righteous. We might become the righteousness of God. You see, we're not righteous before God. We can't make ourselves righteous, but we can be. And when we have the righteousness that God gives us through our acceptance of who Jesus is, that is when we are reconciled to God. This is the miracle. We're all different people. We all have our own personality. And we're looking at two great men here, Matthew and Paul. But you know, this is the miracle that happens in the life of everyone who becomes a Christian. He calls us. Jesus calls us. We follow by recognizing who he is and by accepting him as our Savior through what he did on the cross. And you know, it might not be dramatic in your life, like it wasn't dramatic in my life. It might be. It might not be. But it's no less a miracle that happens when you come to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus than when Paul did and Matthew is doing now in the passage we're looking at. Reminded me when I was doing this of the words for him by John Pantry. You might know John Pantry. He goes back a long time. A Christian singer, Christian songwriter. He works, or he was working, and he's still working in production of Christian music. One of the songs, just give you a, a verse of it. Empty handed, this is how he wanted me. He commanded, I left my old plans at his feet. Till I had nothing, nothing of my own. Then he filled my life to overflowing. This is what happened to Paul. This is what is happening to Matthew. He came empty handed. He got up from his booth, he left it. He was off. God filled his life. How many people in Matthew's day are we still talking about? We're still talking about Matthew. How about that? For a God filled and blessed life. And this brings us to Matthew the disciple. Verse 9 and 10 of the chapter that we read together in Matthew's Gospel. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. You know, this is a modest account by Matthew, something that happened in his house. Something that happened when he followed Jesus. Luke gives us an account of this, as does Mark. Luke actually gives us a little bit more information. What did Matthew say? Many tax collectors and sinners came naked. That's Matthew and the disciples. Luke says a great banquet for Jesus at his house. A large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. Matthew, in a modest way, doesn't mention that. But Luke goes at it, goes blazing. Luke would have been, you know, this was a great banquet. It was in Matthew's house. It was for Jesus. And who was there? A crowd of tax collectors and others. These tax collectors, 
they would have been Jewish colleagues of Matthew's. And the others would have been his Jewish friends, those who were probably in the same sort of context of maybe manipulating the people. Might have been family members there, we don't know. But we do know why they were there. They were there because Matthew wanted them to have what he now had. He wanted to introduce Jesus to them and he wanted them to be introduced to Jesus. And what happened next? What happened? Okay. 9 through 3, 11. Uh, 9, verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? <laughs> this might have been seen as being a little bit of a disruption here. A little bit of, you know, this is a banquet and everybody's there and Jesus is there and Matthew's invited them and he wants them to meet Jesus and then these Pharisees stand off and start to criticise him and they're lining Matthew up because he's a tax collector with sinners in answer to this question Jesus said this in verse 13 on hearing this Jesus said it's not for the healthy you need a doctor but those who are ill. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The truth is, Jesus could say that he didn't come to call the righteous because no one was righteous in the sight of God. So, how true is that? He didn't come for the righteous. You know why? Because there were any. And he sinners. In fact, everyone was a sinner, like we are. Jesus here, got to get hold of this, he's speaking to the religious teachers of the dead. He's speaking to those who have a knowledge, but not a know-how of the scriptures. Do you get that? They have a knowledge of the scriptures, but they don't have the know-how. They see tax collectors and sinners as part of a lost cause. Nothing down for you, mate. That was their attitude. But not only that, they saw themselves as being so far above the man in the street. They saw themselves as being accepted by God. Why? Because of their regular visits to the temple. Because of the amount of money they would put in the temple coffers. Because of the way they would dress and walk about. In their clothes that suggested that they were religious, with an attitude that suggested that they were religious, with their heads held high, looking down on everybody else. You're all no hopers. It's God who loves us. Look at us. You know what Jesus was saying to them? saying this go back to the scriptures go on. go back to the scriptures learn from them the scriptures that you claim to be looking at and living by Jesus gives them a starting point by quoting the prophet Hosea go back 
Look at those scriptures that you claim to be living by. And that's where you want to start. And he quotes them. They would have known that Jesus was quoting the prophet Hosea. They knew the scriptures, but they didn't really know what they meant. Hosea 6, verse 6, back in the Old Testament, this is what Hosea said. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is God speaking through Hosea. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God, rather than burnt offerings. It's not what you can bring. You come empty-handed. And you come to me. And you lean on me. Matthew was a Jew. That's the man we're looking at, his personality. It's, you know, the way he wrote his gospel the way he did. A Jew who had forsaken his fellow Jews by collaborating with the Roman authorities. He's now a disciple of Jesus. He knows that Jesus was the promised Messiah. That's why I wanted to tell everybody. And now he sees Jesus exposed to the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And he could see how much his nation needed Jesus. You feel him with a man. These experiences that he's going through so early on. You know, let's just move on for the sake of time. But later we have not just Matthew the disciple, Matthew the apostle, Matthew the testament, Matthew the disciple. Matthew the Apostle. Matthew 10, verse 1 to 4. Jesus called the twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and illness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus. Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. You know, Matthew quite rightly lists his name among the twelve apostles when he writes his gospel. These were twelve of the disciples who were called to be apostles. This was a great privilege, a privileged position of having responsibility given to them by Jesus. They would become the leaders of the early church. Notice how Matthew describes himself. Matthew, the tax collector. Now that's humility. He's writing his gospel. Why didn't he put Matthew the apostle? He could have done. He put Matthew, and people would sort of like. The tax collector. Get that? Sorry for the gesture there, but you know what I mean. This is his humility. This is how he wanted to be known. This is part of his testimony to his fellow Jews. He wants them to know about the change that Jesus has made in his life. You know, when they saw him, they go, Matthew, yeah. Oh. Is that the tax collector? Yes. That's who I am. That was part of his testimony. And then we come finally to Matthew, the gospel writer. Who did Matthew have in mind when he wrote his gospel? 
primarily was to show the Jewish people that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. And Matthew's central theme being the coming of the kingdom of heaven, which, if you want to count it, is mentioned, unlike the other gospel writers, over 30 times in his gospel. It's there. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. How is he presenting Jesus? He's presenting it in a language that his Jewish readers would understand. Matthew presents Jesus as the king. Oh, the Jewish readers will understand that. When you go to the genealogies of Jesus and you go to Matthew chapter 1, this is what he says. He's given the genealogies of not just Jesus, but the Messiah. How does he do it? He goes from Abraham down the line to Jesse, the father of King David. And then he goes down that I read that line again at the end, the husband, uh, Joseph, the husband of Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. To get that, he's getting the points in. Who is Jesus? He's the promised king in the Davidic line. And at the end of that, sort of Davidic line where he shows, he says, he's Jesus, the one who is the Messiah. The coming of the kingdom is a theme that runs through this gospel. This is what the Jewish nation were waiting for, their long-awaited Messiah. And he was here, he was with them, he was in their midst, and they needed to know him. You know, when Matthew introduces the parables, as the other gospel writers do, Matthew does it in a slightly different way. He introduced them by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Ten times he does that. Jesus gives the parable of the kingdom of heaven and Matthew makes sure he gets that point in. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. These things that Matthew has in his gospel would strike a chord of recognition with his Jewish readers. He refers to more Old Testament prophecies than the other gospel writers. You know, when we come to the John the Baptist, the gospel writers include that, but we read in Matthew, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is come near again. After God spoke to his people through the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament, it would be 400 years before God would speak again. And when he did, it was John the Baptist who came like the Old Testament prophets. And he called the people of Israel to repent of their ways in readiness to receive the promised Messiah. As I mentioned earlier, Matthew used the phrase kingdom of heaven. This is the same as saying the kingdom of God. Both these sayings are completely interchangeable. They both mean the same, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. It could be because Matthew is addressing a mainly Jewish reader in his gospel. He might have avoided using the word God which in the Hebrew would be Yahweh. A word that the Jews felt was too precious a word to write or to speak. And they more than others would understand what was meant by the kingdom of heaven. 
like Mark and Luke, as they introduce us to John the Baptist. They both quote him, Matthew does, Isaiah. All of our Gospels are in the work of making straight the path that will lead us to the Lord. You know, the work of, of, of John the Baptist was to make straight the path that would lead the Jewish nation to the Messiah who is now in their midst. But that theme goes through all the Gospels. All the Gospel writers do this, continue the work of making straight the path that will lead you and I to the Lord. I'm going to finish now. It's 12 o'clock. I'll finish with this. Matthew records for us what is the Great Commission. This is in Matthew 28. Listen to what this says. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, now get this, to the very end of the age. Right? That's the end of time. In Acts 1, Luke puts it this way. He tells them that when they went out to do this work, they started in Jerusalem, then Judea, they went to Samaria, which is outside of Israel, and then to the ends of the earth. And this will go on in every age. That's what's happening here this morning. The same gospel is coming to us through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of them, just like for witnesses who would stand up in a court and bring the truth. They're not identical, but certain areas overlap. All of them are sharing Jesus. And when you look at them and you see that Matthew was in his writing wanted to speak to his people, the Jewish nation, and we see that. And you know the other gospel writers, they did it in their way. But with a different sort of, some were speaking with Gentiles in mind. So we've got this picture. And what I want to bring out this morning is that these gospel writers, like Matthew, were people like you and I. People who knew who Jesus was and wanted to share who Jesus was. And like Matthew, when he filled his house with all his is his fellow tax collectors so that he could introduce them. That's what we do. We come to share the gospel. The good news what that you and I can be reconciled to God. That is brought back to a relationship with God, a relationship that will last through to eternity. But we can't do it of ourselves. But we don't have to. Because Jesus did it. And while Matthew is giving this thread of the Old Testament and the Kingdom of Heaven, which is all applicable to the Jewish people, but we can understand it as well now. And the real thread that ran through all four Gospels is that Jesus died. He died for you and I. He paid the price that we couldn't pay, the price for our sinful nature. He was buried and he arose again the third day. And he conquered sin and death and hell. And that means that price that he paid is what we as guilty sinners will deserve 
Bonitil mit vilkautta pohjaa. Kun ei kun jääksä Jeesusin se vahvaas, niin mit seikin saa seikin. Olen tarvun siihen, että siinä tuotuu Shannon kanssa. A part of it, thank you, we gave the opportunity we have to share this wonderful story. It is a real story. It is real. It is... It happened. And these accounts are brought to us by real people. People who experience these things. People who live these things. And behind it all, is the driving of the Holy Spirit who led them to write these words. And Father, we know that this book that we have, this living book, this Bible, many have tried to destroy it. Why have they failed? Because it's your word, your message to mankind. And it's your desire that we here in Croxton this morning would hear the message that you have for us. The message that Jesus had paid the price that we couldn't pay. And if we accept him as our Savior, then we will be reconciled back to you. Father, we do this in the precious name of Jesus.